0: If you will, please turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, uh, page 724 in the Bibles that we provide below the seats in front of you. Ezekiel 36, we're going to begin in verse 22. Uh, this is obviously not in the book of Acts, so we're taking uh, a break from the book of Acts to finish up a series that we started about a year ago. Um, about the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, We are a Protestant church. We are a Reformed church, which just means that uh, we agree with the protesting that was done in Europe 500 years ago uh, that challenged what was a common view of salvation held by the Roman Catholic Church uh, in that day, and we're reformed. Which um, uh, maybe the the clearest and simplest understanding of that is that we believe that we are to be reformed by God's word. Every time it corrects our understandings, we bend to it. We don't impose what we think should be right on the word. This, this uh, sermon is going to be a little bit different than just going through a passage then. We're going to go through several passages. We'll, we'll start in Ezekiel. We'll, we'll then move to the Gospel of John. If you want to have your hand in two places, you can do that now. And then we're going to go to other passages. This is going to be a theological sermon, which is just to say that we're going to go to passages of Scripture and try to learn what it's telling us about salvation. Now, when we talk about the five solas of the Reformation, the five, in in Latin, the five alones of salvation and how God has saved sinners. Uh, It it, it is protesting, not any individual Catholic or your friends who are Catholic or whatever. It is protesting, Protestant means it's protesting, the official views of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, So I'm happy to be corrected about Anything that I say uh, about what Catholics believe about salvation, but um, uh, I do think this is faithful to what they officially believe and to what Scripture then corrects in that. Um, Last thing I'll say is just because we're a Protestant church does not mean we don't need to be reformed. Again, we need today, even if you don't identify yourself, As believing about salvation, what the Catholics believe about salvation. You need, and I need, to have our thoughts of salvation formed by God's Word. So today we we finish that series and talk about how salvation is for God's glory alone. Let's pray. God, we pray that You would reform us. We pray that You, by Your Word, would protest every, every hint of boasting and self-glory in our lives, but especially about the great topic of salvation. We pray, God, that You would overcome us by Your Spirit, and You would glorify Yourself, and You would cause us to believe what is true, that you do everything for your own name. And that includes saving sinners. Oh God, we pray that you would work. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will, please stand with me as we read God's words to us this morning. Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 22. I I want these words to fall on each of our hearts and And see how it reveals ways in which our hearts are still recovering from our obsession with ourselves. This idea that we're seeing in this passage directly confronts popular notions of what we do in our own salvation and why we are saved and why God saves anyone. Pay attention to how your own heart might resist these clear words from God. Ezekiel 36, the context is the people of God have so rebelled against God that they have broken their covenant. God has sent them away, scattered them throughout the world, away from His presence because sin separates us from God and God is going to save them. Notice why He's going to save them. Exodus 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of My holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which You came. And I will vindicate the holiness of My great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which You have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through You I vindicate My holiness before their Eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I Will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. This is the Word of God, beloved. Please be seated. God saves alone so that He alone gets glory. God saves alone all by Himself. He leaves none of that work to us. He does it all by himself so that all the credit will go to him. All the glory will go to him. That's why he does it that way. Three points for this sermon. Point number one we are saved for God's glory. We are saved for God's glory. One of the most difficult things about preparing to preach this sermon is disciplining myself to use only a few passages. If you were to start to look for God's commitment to his own glory in Scripture, it would be like looking for a truck on a Texas highway. They they are everywhere and God's glory, His commitment to His own glory is everywhere in Scripture. From the beginning all the way to the end, this is a book that is about God's supremacy over everyone and over everything. Think about the very first words that God recorded in this book. He said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is distinguishing Himself from everyone and everything, and He's putting Himself over everyone and everything. He is supreme in everything and over everyone. And in salvation, we are saved for God's glory alone because salvation is no different than anything else. It is by Him and it is for Him. It exists for His glory. Or you could put it another way. If you're looking for a definition of glory, let me help you out. Everything exists to make God look great. To make Him look beautiful. To make Him look supreme. To make Him look worthy. Sole Deo Deo Gloria. Sole Deo... Man, I don't know Latin very well. Sole Deo Gloria. Glory to God Alone is, listen, you, you need to catch this. This is first of all about God and His commitment to Himself. To say that we are safe for God's glory alone is to start with God. What I mean is, He is the first actor in this. He is the one who guarantees that all glory will go to Him. Listen to what He says in Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. No one else can claim that. I am the Lord, there is no other Lord. And my glory, as the only God, I will give to no other. What that means is, and this is getting right at the thoughts that will be natural to you and me, and even the sermons that are preached from many pulpits. Salvation is not first about you. It is not first about me. It's not about, salvation is not about God's love for sinners primarily. Salvation is not primarily about the wonderful way, or the wonderful things that God does with those He saves. Salvation is first about God and His single-minded commitment to guard His own glory and to grow the recognition of who He is as glorious throughout all the world. That is why He saves. And there is a way to preach the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, in a way that falls far short of this. Because it makes way too much of people. And it totally ignores everything we've just read in the promise from Ezekiel about salvation that God saves for God's sake. God saves for God's sake. Let this be known to you, My people. It is not for your sake. It is for My sake. Now I heard a story recently of a woman who's been married for decades who has every few years been tempted to abandon the marriage because of the failures of her husband. I don't mean sinful failures, but just a, I don't like that he's like this. And this is just a cycle year in and year out. And I was also told that in some ways this started way back when she was a child. And she was... Known by her family and then by those outside of her family as being uniquely pretty. And it was almost like from a very young age, she grasped onto this idea that I'm special and people treat me as special and I can have whoever I want to have. And therefore, I don't need to put up with those who don't meet my standards. Now, when we hear that, I hope you're repulsed by that, by the kind of thing. And and, and I also hope you see that in your own heart, how we are born with this condition to be absorbed with ourselves. Now, I want you to look at God in Exodus 36. What I want to point out is what he says, you will do what they will do, and what I will do. In salvation, who makes what contribution? Look at what you, the people who are saved by Me, God says, you will do in Ezekiel 36 and verse 31. Then, after I save you, what is their attitude about what they brought to salvation? Verse 31, you will, this is your contribution, you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act. I couldn't act for your sake. There is nothing appealing in you. Notice. Verse 33, we've heard it over and over, but verse 33, what God commits to, what He will do, I, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited. In other words, I, I thrust you out of my my land and your land So it's empty, it's desolate, it's a waste place. But I will bring you back. I will save you and give you this land. I'm the one who's going to do that. And then notice what they will do in light of this. The nations, the people who are not saved by God. What will they do? And what does this teach us about salvation? Verse 34. And when that land that was empty and wasted and ruined is is then built up again, those who pass by that land... Will say something. This land that was ruined and desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Verse 36. Then the nations all around the people I save will know that I am the Lord, that I was the one who rebuilt the ruined places, that I replanted that garden that was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. God is chapped in the book of Ezekiel because Israel has profaned His name. In other words, they've given Him, their God, a bad name. Now, what is the difference between the nasty narcissism of people and the righteousness of God being single mindedly committed to His own name. What would be a vice for us is a virtue in God, it is repulsive, disgusting. When humans focus on their own fame, it is righteous when God does that. Why is that? Listen carefully. Why is it that you're told not to be proud and to pursue your own fame, but you're told that it's fine and right and the best thing for God to be pursuing His own fame and name and glory? Whether pursuing glory is right or wrong depends on the object. Is the object worthy of glory? That's the question. We were made for God's glory, to bring Him glory. So... Bringing glory to ourselves is by definition a rebellion against why we even exist. And as an object of glory, we are unworthy. So so wanting other people to think highly of us is wrong because they weren't made to think highly of us. They were made to think highly of God. So when we want them to think highly of us, we are sinning and we're asking them to sin. On the other hand, God is worthy of glory. This is why it's right. Because He is beautiful. Because He is powerful. Because He is merciful. Because He is kind. Because He is trustworthy. Because He is patient. Because He is loving. Because He is mighty. He is glorious. Therefore, it is right It is right for everyone to acknowledge God's glory by seeking His glory and it is wrong for anyone to seek the glory of anyone or anything other than God and that includes God. It would be wrong for God to do anything less than seek His own glory. Because He's pursuing what is glorious when He pursues His own glory. And He's calling other people to do what they were created to do when He expects them to live for His glory. He would be sinning otherwise. And God cannot do wrong. And so He orders everything He does around the highest goal in all of the universe, which is to make Himself known. Now when people particularly this is true in other places but particularly in our part of the world think about salvation they don't normally think of the five solas or the alones that god does this alone they they have a concept of god plus i mean the same people will say they will say it's all for god's glory It's all for God's glory. How many people are just giving lip service because they treat God's greatest work of salvation as if it is the only exception to everything else and why it exists? As if this was not. Maybe they'll say... We're saved for God's glory. But the way they then unpack that, it's clear that they're reserving glory for man. Listen to me. Salvation is monergistic. Monergistic. Mono, alone, or or one. Gistic. Energistic is work, the work of one. It's not synergistic. It's not two parties working together. We are saved by grace alone. It is not We are not saved by anything positive in us. We are saved purely as the gift of God. We are saved through faith alone. It is not through our walking an aisle that we are saved or talking to anyone a pastor after a service that we are saved, or repeating after a pastor some sort of prayer. It is not when we get in the water that through that we are saved. It's through faith alone. In Christ alone. It won't be in purgatory that we will purge the rest of the evil that is left over from what Christ did. No, we don't need the help of any saint. We need Christ alone. God said, I will act I will clean you. I will bring you back. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my ways. I will save you. And all of this is according to Scripture alone. It's not according to the authority of any human counsel or any chief interpreter of Scripture. And all of these five alones, these five solas, or the other four, each of them, And all of them together are directing our attention to this fifth and final one. That glory should go to God alone. Why does he say? Why does he repeat? It is not for your sake that I am about to act. It is for my holy name. I'm doing this so that I would have a name that is set apart from every other. You have profaned my name. I will vindicate. I will take the name that you made bad and I will make it great again through my saving work so that the nations and all the world are going to know. That's why I'm doing it. It's not first of all for you. And yet, look at all the blessings that come to us. How can we argue? How can we think this isn't enough? I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to make you holy. But know this. It's not for you. It's for me. God saves alone so that He alone gets glory. Let's turn To the New Testament in John chapter 1. And we will see that this is not just a promise from the Old Testament. That when salvation actually comes, because the Savior comes, we see that the Savior is all about God's glory as well. So point number two is we have a Savior who is for God's glory. If we read on in Ezekiel, we would see how God's glory, though it had come to Israel alone, God's glory had to leave His people because of their sin. And so the New Testament is answering this question, if God made the world for the purpose of making a name for Himself, if that's why this world exists... And yet sinners give God a bad name. How is God going to get his way? How can God's glory come to a world full of sinners? John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. the Old Testament says God's glory cannot dwell with sinners. And God makes a way in His Son. Glory, the glory of God takes on human flesh so that He might deal with the sin that blinds us to God's beauty. So that He might deal with the sin that disqualifies us from the highest privilege of our existence, which is to bring honor to our God, which we never would have because of our sin. In order for that goal of God to glorify Himself, to, to be met, God has to deal with sin, and He deals with sin. In order to do all of that promise in Ezekiel 36, He's not going to do it from a distance. Glory takes on the flesh of humanity and comes and lives with these sinners. He's doing something that has never been done. Look at verse 11. And notice when Jesus, the Son of God, comes. He comes to His people and His own people don't receive Him. So we're still in Ezekiel's world. God's own people don't receive the glory of Jesus. Then turn over to John 11. And we'll see how they don't embrace Jesus. See how God's own people in their leaders. John John 11 verse 47. See what they do when they see the glory of God. And I hope you can see in your heart. And maybe this is a reason why there aren't all that many reformed churches among those who call themselves Christian because the thing that our hearts hate, our flesh hates the most, is giving glory to God. It's admitting that we need to be saved. It's admitting that we can only hate ourselves and all the evil ways that we have brought to this need for salvation. Look at the way humanity and God's own people responds when the glory of God appears to them in Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 47. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they get a group of leaders together and they say, what should we do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. The Romans are going to take away our place. One of them, Caiaphas, who is the high priest, he's the one who offers up lambs. He's the one who goes into the Holy of Holies. He's the one who offers blood for the people. He speaks up and He says, you don't know anything, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, we can't let people go on believing in Him. We're not going to let it get so far that the Romans come in and take our place. We're going to kill them. And that will be better. That that way the people of God can go on being the people of God. Wow. Totally blind in this sin. Verse 51, he didn't say this of his own accord. In other words, he didn't really understand this. But he was high priest. And he was giving a prophecy he did not even understand. That Jesus would die for the nation. Not only for the nation, but to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So they made plans to put Jesus to death. And while they're making plans to put Jesus to death, Jesus, as God, knows what they're doing. And in His glory, look at what He says in chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name in what I do in this hour Don't save me from this hour because I haven't come to be saved from this hour. I've come to this hour to glorify Your name. And then a voice from heaven, surely the Father Himself answers, I have glorified My name and I'm going to glorify it Again, in what you're about to do, when Jesus is facing the fact that this high priest Caiaphas is going to offer Him up, so to speak, as a sacrifice for sins, when Jesus is facing this reality that He, in order to achieve all that was promised in Ezekiel 36, in order to save anyone, in order to fill the world with His names, with the the glory of God's name, in order to vindicate the bad name that these people of God gave to God because they hate God and they hate what He wants. In order to do all of that, Jesus has to bear on His own shoulders, through His own blood, the wrath of God for sinners on a cross. And that troubles the soul of Jesus, but He doesn't shrink back because His heart is troubled. This is His hour. And notice, when Jesus says, am I not going to face this hour? No, I'm going to face it to glorify You, Father. Glorify Your name through what I'm about to do on the cross. And the Father says, I will glorify it. In other words, the Father does not spare His Son. The Father does not say, I'm going to save You from this hour. The Father says, you go and die for My name. And I will do everything I've promised to do with what you do in death. Martin Luther, in the midst of the Protestant Reformation, said it is not, for, it's not enough for anyone to just recognize that God is glorious when, he's, when we see Him as being majestic. You don't know God's glory at all until you see the humiliation and the shame of the cross. In pursuit of God's own name, think about what the Son had to do. He was made for a little while lower than the angels. The God of life tasted death. And then right before He does all this, chapter 17, listen to what's on Jesus' heart. Chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. If you just look in chapter 18, he gets arrested. In chapter 19, he dies on the cross. The hour has come for that. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This has to do with grace alone. It's a gift. And this is eternal life that you know, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's through faith in Jesus alone that we come to salvation, which is knowing God. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, I entered into time. Out of eternity, I entered into time so that I could get an hour. So that I could glorify my Father by suffering. And he describes it as that is what finishes the work that God sent him to do. Suffer. And then He says, after I'm done suffering, will you bring me back back into your glory? God raises Jesus from the dead. And then He ascends into heaven and He returns to glory through His suffering. On the other end of death, having defeated death, so that He can cleanse sinners of all their sins and bring people to God. What excuse do you have? What excuse do you have? What charge would you bring against this God? This God, who you may be tempted to feel is sinful because he seeks his own glory. Look at how he does it. He dies for the guilty, he takes the hell that we thoroughly earned so that he can give us the heaven that we would never have otherwise so that He can cause us to live, so that we can know the God we were made to know, so that we can know Him as a loving God and a merciful God and a sacrificial God. Do you have any excuse not to devote your life to this God? There is no reason that is valid for you to go on living your life for yourself. Live for this God. Turn from your sins and trust in Him and be brought into the presence of God and the knowledge of Him. God saves alone so that He alone gets glory. If you look in chapter 17, verse 22, you'll see something else that Jesus prays for before He goes to the cross. The glory that You have given Me, Father, I have given to them. My disciples. I've given the glory you gave to me to my disciples that they may be one even as we are one. The God who will not give his glory to another happily gives glory to Jesus because Jesus is God and so that's right. And then the Son of God shares his glory with those who love him. Now, how is that not a threat to God's glory alone going to Him? Point number three, the saved are glorified for God's glory. The saved are glorified for God's glory. Let me just walk you through three explanations of how God glorifies Himself by Sharing his glory with those he saves. Three explanations for how it is that God is actually bringing glory to himself when he shares his glory with those he saves. Number one, we were created for glory. That's what Hebrews 2 told us picking up on Psalm 8. David said, God, you are glorious and you have crowned humanity with glory. You are glorious and you have made humanity in your image. And in that way, you have shared your glory with humanity. So what this means is, we were made for the purpose of showing the world like an image, like a mirror, like a reflection, who God is in His glory. Everything we do was for glory in the sense that we were to glorify God. Number two, we fell from glory. That's what Romans 3 says, right? We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whenever Adam sinned, he fell short of the glory he was made for. This is going to explain how God will not share His glory and yet in some way He does share His glory. Listen, we share God's glory only to the, degree that, to the degree that we live for God's glory. That's what it means to share His glory, to live for His glory, is to live under Him. So, when we sinned, we fell short of that glory. When Adam refused to live under God, to submit to God, he and then we in him fell short of that glory. So there is a glory that God will not share. It belongs to Him alone, and that is supremacy. He is supreme. He will not share His supremacy with anyone. We live glorious lives like mirrors. That's how we live glorious lives. We are not beautiful or worthy or glorious on our own. We reflect our subjects. We share glory in the sense that we reflect it when we acknowledge God's glory as the supreme one that we live all of our lives for and in submission to. So sin shatters the mirror. Number three, we were saved For glory. We were created for glory. We fell from glory in sin. And then there's a restoration of that creation purpose. We were saved for glory. That's why Hebrews says we don't see glory right now in humans. We see Jesus crowned with glory because of his death. But he is bringing many sons to glory. What is he doing? When Jesus died, for the sin that shattered the glory that God intended for a people who lived to honor Him, Jesus' death saves us by bringing us to that glory. God glorifies Himself by glorifying us in that sense He He returns us to that position where we happily live under Him and do everything we can to show what He's like. That's what it means to be glorified. God saves alone so that he alone gets glory. This is how he's glorifying himself by doing something in sinners. Look at what God has done in making a people who see real glory and who live for it. So, first. Corinthians 10 verse 30 tells us, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or do anything, do everything, Christian, for the glory of God. So there's a real sense in everything you do and everything I do that we should be asking the question, What can I do right now that is going to make God look great? If you're a Christian, then you have been saved so that you might actually achieve the purpose for which God created everyone, which is to do everything for Him, to give Him a good name. Let me close with three ways. That we should live for the glory of God according to God's Word. Three ways that God's Word speaks about what it looks like to live for the glory of God. Number one, boast in God. A famous composer named Bach used to write SDG, Soli Deo Gloria after he would finish a beautiful composition, he was saying, this is beautiful, and all glory goes to God, and none of it goes to me. He does that for music. You and I better be doing that for our salvation. We know what we have earned. We know there is nothing good in us apart from God's grace. Soli Deo Gloria should be written on every thought that you think about why you're saved and others aren't. It was nothing to credit you. Boast in Him, not in yourself. Number two, suffer for God. Continually. This is a way in Scripture that you are to bring glory to God as you suffer for Him. Listen to what Romans 8 says says if you are children of God then you are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him these present sufferings are not worthy of comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us you live for glory you live for God's glory only when you suffer suffer Suffering well. Suffering sorts out those who are only pretending that they want God to be glorified. Suffering will sort out those who are only pretending that they want all glory to go to God. Suffering will show whether you want glory for yourself or not. The greatest demonstration of God's glory was the Son of God suffering. And it's His glory we share we show that God is supreme in worthiness only when, only if, we suffer in a way that we are convinced that God is worth even this pain. Number three, finally, wait for God. Wait for God. To what First Peter, a book all about suffering and how that sorts out those who are truly Christians. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Beloved, he's done it all for his name. He has not done it for your sake. But look at what he has done for you. Look at what we get. All because of His actions. All because of what He's done. And He has staked His glory. Not on just starting to save you, but keeping you to the very end. And it won't be, the fullness of His glory will not be revealed until the very end. So we are to wait for the fullness. We are to wait on God through our suffering, knowing fully that the God of glory has made a promise and He is going to use this sorrow to prove that He really is a redeemer of all bad things. He's going to use this hardship to prove to us, to cause us to know Him in reality that He's the only Lord who is our sustainer. He's going to use all of His promises and His faithfulness to prove to us that He is glorious in truthfulness God is going to keep His promises to you. Wait for God. God saves alone so that He alone gets glory. Oh God, we come to You and ask that You would be gracious to us and that You would cause us to believe and not just accept as, as clearly true throughout Scripture. That you do everything for your glory and that includes salvation. We would not just embrace that as true as if we're begrudging this truth. Cause us to love it and therefore live for your name. May it never be that anyone here would give you a bad name by acting like you don't deserve all glory. We ask this in your name.